What's up guys, I'm here in Mykonos, Greece, and I've got an interesting topic today talking about the use of bridge loans today where I think it is inappropriate. This has been on my mind, a lot of people in this space have been talking about it, and it, you're seeing it all around you, and that is people buying all sorts of deals, really deals that don't belong on bridge loans, with bridge loans. The classic example would be a Class A property. It's stabilized, right? It's Class A, there's not a whole ton you could do with it. People are still buying and financing it with bridge. The reason why they're doing that is because permanent lenders are constrained to making a loan based on in-place financials. In-place financials on a Class A deal like that, right, you might be buying at a four cap or less. At that point, you're debt service constrained, so if you're hungry for more proceeds, you're stuck because the lender can only go so far based on the in-place numbers. Now, that's where a bridge lender comes in. A bridge lender is able to offer more proceeds, not because they're just more aggressive necessarily, a bridge lender's lending based on pro forma and they're lending based on a future takeout loan. So they care less about the in-place numbers and they care about where the numbers are going to be so that they can underwrite a refi that takes them out, right? That's the takeout loan and that's the bridge lender's security that they're making a prudent loan because there's, a, there's an exit there for them instead of just you know a forced sale. So that's how the bridge lenders approach typical lending parameters and that's how they're able to get around the low debt service coverage ratio of let's say buying a stabilized class A deal and you wanting 75% leverage, 80% leverage, and you can't get it from the agencies. All right, so that's buyers are doing that on bridge. The reason why they're doing that is because it makes the numbers work, right? The more leverage you have, the more your projected returns are, right? That doesn't mean your returns are guaranteed to be more, it's just the higher they're projected to be, right? But as we know, leverage works in both directions. And that's why we have to kind of look under the hood and analyze the risk associated with doing a bridge loan, which a bridge loan is always riskier than a perm loan. That's just a fact. But that doesn't mean bridge loans are bad. We love bridge loans and sometimes it's the absolute right tool for the job and nothing else works. And so for that we're very grateful and it's a, it's a fabulous product. But when used incorrectly it really just adds risk and really doesn't give you anything in return, right? Yes, your projected returns go up, but on a risk-adjusted basis, are those returns really better? And the answer is usually no. But like I said, the reason why buyers are doing this is because pricing is so competitive and if the price is here and you need to make your numbers work anyway, right? one way to do that is to juice up leverage. And so if you're constrained to 65% leverage, which is very typical, people are still buying and financing it with bridge. On the agency side, as a buyer, that's more equity that you have to raise, so that's more work for you. and you have lower returns. So you're gonna have a harder time working to raise more equity because it's gonna be a harder sell because the numbers don't sing. That's the allure of the bridge loan. Now, why is the bridge loan more expensive and why is it inappropriate, in my opinion, to use a bridge loan in this scenario? Well, because you're not really creating value and so the takeout isn't there. What is your takeout? Your takeout is a perm loan. And how are perm lenders underwriting that deal? Well, they're underwriting it to, let's say, 65% leverage. So if they're underwriting it to 65% leverage and you get 75 or 80 from a bridge, now, you know, what's your takeout? How are you going to go from the 75 to the 65? Well, you could do that by, you know, rent growth, cap rate compression, you know, some sort of value add, adding ancillary income or something like that. But if we're talking about a class A deal, there's really not much to do. Now on the spreadsheet, you can have at it and you can say, all right, well, we're going to, you know, the rents are under market and, you know, we can add carports and this and that. And, and you can, and it's possible. And the market can continue to grow like it has and all is well. So that's the conundrum with bridge loans is you've got you know, really a fully stabilized product or near stabilized product and then you're putting on financing that implies that there needs to be big lift and upside in order for there to be a takeout and it's not there. 
So somehow bridge lenders are underwriting and buying into the value add program and they're making the numbers work and you know hopefully all continues to go well and nobody will be hurt. But that's the risk that you're not seeing in the numbers. You're just seeing the magnified return through the additional leverage. But you can go under the hood and one of the ways to go under the hood is actually through a, a refinance or an exit test, right? You can actually plug in the numbers. You can say, well, all right, well, where is the NOI going to be when this bridge loan matures, let's say in three years. And you can make assumptions about the capital markets at that time. You can say, well, how are lenders going to, or appraisers going to value the property on a cap rate basis? Now you've got NOI and you've got cap rate, and you can say, well, what is lending appetite going to be like? Are, are lenders going to be constrained to 75% leverage, 1.2, 1.25 DSCR? Probably, so you can have those assumptions in there. You know, what are interest rates? Because that factors in into your debt service coverage ratio equation, right? The greater the interest rate, the lower your NOI is going to be relative to your debt service, and that's going to hurt that equation. All that, you can make forecasts about the future, and then you can see, all right, well, realistically, with all those assumptions, what does my takeout loan look like? And obviously, if your takeout loan is less than your in-place bridge loan, you have a bad situation because that's going to result in a situation where you have to make a capital call or just sell the property outright in order to pay off that bridge loan. Now conversely, if a property actually has enough value add potential, enough potential to increase the property's income and therefore value to justify the bridge loan, right, on the exit test, you should actually see a future loan be higher than your in-place bridge loan, right? That's an indication of, okay, great, if I implement this business plan, you know, not only am I protecting myself from bridge loan getting hung or takeout risk, whatever you want to call it, you're actually going to be able to potentially do a cash out refi and return equity to your partnership, which is obviously a very good thing. So in my opinion, I think that this trend of bridge loans, bridge loans, even when it's not necessarily the right tool for the job, I think it's very bad for the market. I think it's resulting in prices getting bid up further, right? It's just a way for buyers to justify higher pricing and so the prices go ever higher, right? If all buyers were prudent and said, you know what, I'm not gonna do the bridge, I'm going to stick to my guns, I'm gonna stick to my return requirements, well, prices would have to stay lower at that point because buyers would be stuck. They wouldn't be able to push their numbers with this leverage. So I think this is bad for the market I think it's creating undue risk. I forget who said this, but there was a, there's a saying that whenever there's a big bubble and a collapse, at the center of it, you'll always find a lender. And I don't know if that's really true. That's speaking pretty pejoratively about lenders. But you know, historically, if you look at how asset prices take off and how things can get out of whack, it's when lending becomes decoupled from valuation or valuation gets decoupled really from fundamentals. That would be more accurate, right? So if you've got value here and, and NOI here and both move like this, everything's fine. But if all of a sudden NOI is here, or maybe even going lower, but value continues to climb, now you've got a, a decoupling of fundamentals and that's a problem. And you really can't have that happen unless a lender's abetting it. Because if lenders just stick to their guns and they only lend based on a certain LTV and a certain debt service coverage ratio, then pricing can only go so far because all, all of us in this market participate as levered return buyers, right? We're underwriting to levered returns, so leverage is very important to our numbers. And the less leverage we get, the less favorable, then the lower the price we're able to pay. So that's why you know I don't like seeing this. It's also difficult from our perspective because we know going into these types of deals, we're competing against buyers that are going to go this route. And so we're at a competitive disadvantage because we're going to be using a more conservative capital structure, which has lower projected returns, which 
is a harder thing for us to sell to our investors, which doesn't allow us to pay as much. So that is uh, another reality that we have to fight. So our solution, unfortunately, for now, is you know, essentially to avoid those types of deals. We, we definitely prefer, I mean, the, the, the home run type deal is a deal these days that actually pencils to max agency leverage. Right, and that doesn't mean we're leverage hungry and, or leverage junkies, right? If we were, we would just do every single deal with a bridge loan. The reason why we would like a deal that qualifies for max leverage on an agency loan is that means it actually pencils with real deal in place NOI. It means that the lender has been able to identify, you know, through the income and expenses, max loan amount that still covers on a 1.25x DSCR. And what that means is your NOI is 125% of your debt service. That's rare these days. And that's why everything's a value add because you're buying low in place income with the plan to raise it. And so that is possible and that is true, but more often than not, that value add is less than likely. And so you have to actually go out there and find the deals because every deal is pitching you value add. You have to go and find the ones that actually do have that true value add component and give you the opportunity to stabilize at a favorable return on cost, which is your future cap rate, right? So if you're buying in at a low cap rate that constrains your proceeds or just, you know, doesn't provide great cash flow, you need to be able to stabilize to a future cap rate that actually is more than adequate or better than the just regular market cap rate because you took the time and risk and capital expenditure to get to that stabilized level. This doesn't mean we would never do a bridge loan. Like I said before, we're big fans of bridge loans and we're just looking for the right deals to employ that strategy for. And so kind of like I just said, properties that actually have enough lift where we can stabilize to a, a very strong return on cost I would say upper five, six, six percent plus, depending on the location and the business plan, that would start to justify a bridge loan and get you to where you need to go in the most capital efficient way. Because at, at some point, if you're doing a deal with $15,000 per unit of CapEx, a bridge loan that's going to finance that is much better than raising that from equity. That's just a more efficient capital structure. Another way to look at this, it just makes sense from a practical standpoint. If you have a deal that's 95% occupied and you put a bridge loan on it, yeah, of course you can raise rents and there's ways that you can push the revenue and income higher. Practically speaking, right, it's a stabilized deal. Whereas if you think about a deal that's, let's say, 70% occupied, you actually have to put a bridge loan on that because it's not stabilized. Perm debt is only for stabilized property, which is typically 90% occupied for 90 days. So if you're below 90% occupied, that's where the bridge loan starts to come into play. And if you do a deal that's 70% occupied, and then raise it to 90% or 90% plus, that's a ton of value right there. And that's what's going to allow you to go in with that 80% bridge loan and then take out to the 75% perm loan. I hope these thoughts were helpful. Thanks for watching.